You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So if you open your bulletins, and, and they're going to get one at least, Dave, <clears throat> you'll notice that it says the heir of all, Hebrews 1-2. This is what's known as a church bait and switch. <clears throat> I, for one, will miss Jim's unpacking of the word this morning, but he, he texted the elders early this week that he was not doing well. He's got a cough, and when he speaks more than three words at a time, or forcefully, anyway, he coughs. So it's a blessing for his family, but for us... Here I am. Um, Dave read to you First Thessalonians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and I hope to get through six verses today, um, which is quite a feat sometimes. Some of the books Paul wrote, when he wrote them, he must have, I, I try to picture what it must have been like for him 2,000 years ago. As he wrote to the First Corinthians, it would have been me saying, what, what now? What now? When he wrote to the Galatians, it was more of his Brooklyn accent. Those guys, those Judaizers, that's, what he, that's how he wrote Galatians. When he wrote Romans, it was something like maybe, really? Especially when you read chapter 1. And when he wrote Philippians, I think he was saying, nice, this is, this, I enjoy this. But when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, it was like he said, oh, bring me my coffee. This is really an enjoyable thing to write about. When I began the book of 1 Thessalonians, we looked at an introduction in the first four verses. A short review was in order since that was February of 2017. I was trying to remember when I did speak, and it was that long ago. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians is a genuine epistle of Paul, and it was probably written in 50 or 51 AD. It is an epistle full of thanksgiving, for Paul is delighted with the growth of this little church composed of mostly Greeks with some, some Jews present. He remarks often that this church was a comfort to him, and a blessing. It was unnecessary for him to identify as himself as an apostle, and you'll notice in the opening uh, phrases of, of 1 Thessalonians, he doesn't use the normal tendency he has to identify himself as an apostle and by grace, and, and well, he does use his standard grace uh, introduction, but, but he doesn't feel it necessary because the, the Thessalonians accepted him. They believed his writing. They had checked it out, and they understood that this was a true apostle. So, as I mentioned, we completed the introduction, and we went through the first four verses. Paul reminded the Thessalonians that he prayed for them, and that he kept in mind the work, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. They were a church on the move, and he was glad of it, and he complimented them. Now, the Thessalonians were, five, were six things. Now, I, I often see preachers have mnemonic devices, and usually they use three, or at the most four. But as is my normal standard procedure, I never use a sentence when a paragraph will do, so we're going to use six. Six mnemonic devices. The Thessalonians were, they were chosen, verse 4. They were convinced, verse 5. They were cherished, verse 6. They were copycats, verse 7. They were communicators, 8 and 9, and they were calm, verse 10. Chosen, convinced, cherished, copycats, communicators, and calm. For those of you writing down, Things, good luck for those of you just listening. You may not remember that. 
but please remain calm. Verse 4, they were chosen. When we, let, when we closed last time with verse 4, we looked at the fact that the Thessalonians understood that they were beloved of God because of his choice. They were elected, they were chosen to be children of the Most High. Nine words in verse 4 bespeak that wondrous concept. Let me go back to 1 Thessalonians here. Actually, I have it right here in my paper. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, his choice of you. Nine words in verse 4 bespeak one of the most wondrous and precious doctrines in all of Scripture, that salvation is all the work of God. And thus it should be. Were it to be a work of men, it would never happen. All would be lost, but because the Thessalonians could delight in God's choice of them, they could be about the business of living out that wondrous gospel. We close back then with verse 4, and I mentioned that many commentators believe that the first section ended with verse 3, and the next section started with verse 4. I preferred to both close that section with verse 4 and start the next section, which is what we have done. While that verse demonstrates that salvation is completely a work of God, man must still respond to that call when he is quickened, when he is awakened by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And we, see, we will see that in verses 6 and 9. They believed, and it was, as it was done for Abraham, it was credited to them for righteousness. That is the extent of their participation, and yet it is an important participation. God does all the work. He drew them. He regenerated them so that they could hear. He gave them the saving faith necessary, and then they believed. Verse 4 introduces the next section, wherein Paul describes how he brought the gospel to them and the conditions that existed at the time. He refers to the fact that the Thessalonians became examples to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Thessalonians also became a megaphone, if you will, for the gospel as the story of their turning from idols to the true God made its way through that part of Europe. <clears throat> in his two epistles to the Thessalonians, Paul uses the term brothers 21 times. And the singular brother, another seven times. This church of mostly Gentiles with some Jews had, become the, had overcome the barriers that existed in that day and age between Gentiles and Jews. And they loved one another and it was evident to those outside the church, as will be made manifestly clear as we move through this epistle, that they were a church of brothers and sisters who really loved one another, who really cared one for, for one another. They had overcome those first century barriers. So they were chosen. They were chosen by God. Verse 5, they were convinced. Verse 5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul now launches into a section praising the Thessalonians for the living out of their salvation in a clear and convincing manner, a clear and compelling way, so much so that the world around them noticed it and remarked about it. The world was impacted by these Thessalonians as they lived out their faith. They may not even have known that. They may not have known that they were impacting the world because they were a humble church. But when the, someone actually lives out the gospel and is truly humble, it affects people. They see it, and it either tantalizes or encourages or infuriates them. I would say that's the three most common responses to someone living out the gospel, especially in these days. They are either tantalized, they wonder about it, they just wonder about it. They've never, can you imagine that there are people who have never heard the gospel in America? They've never, some people have never cracked a Bible in this country. I imagine there's more Bibles in this country than there are any other kind of reading material. They were, so that they may be tantalized. <clears throat> Others would be encouraged because they're brothers and sisters, they're believers, and the living out of the gospel encourages them to, to live it out themselves. 
others will be infuriated. I remember a story of a woman who wouldn't rent to a Christian couple. And the reason she wouldn't rent to them was because their lifestyle infuriated her, made her feel small, made her feel insignificant, made her feel bad because they were actually living out the gospel life. And she didn't like it, so she wouldn't rent to them. Now, do you think they, do you imagine that that Christian couple brought a lawsuit to sue to, well, I'll just leave it there, of course they didn't. But the Thessalonians were convinced the gospel, Paul says, did not come to them in word only, but also in power. The translation of the Greek word for power is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. It's a common word used often in the New Testament. And I don't want the, the, the sense of, of excellence that that word has here to be lost on us. They were, they were convinced by the power of the lives that the apostles were living. <clears throat> it conveys the idea of a multitude of certainty. He says that they came with full conviction, and I jumped ahead of myself there. Did you notice it? He, they came with a full sense of conviction. That word conveys a sense of certainty, a multitude of certainty. He says uh, that, that it was a full conviction from the, the Holy Spirit. The gospel that Paul brought was not just talk, not just talk. Because of the Holy Spirit entering into the life of a believer, the changes and the blessing that were spoken of in the gospel become a part of the believer's life in reality. And many of you know that as the Lord changed you, some things he changed immediately, some things took longer. But the changes came. The gospel changes lives. And people who live it out more than anything. We need to preach the word. That's the most important thing God has given us to do. But the living of that gospel out with our speaking is so important. They weren't just full of words and bluster, those apostles. They were the communicators of an incredible and blessed change that life of life that was marked from the day they believed. No one by themselves would even stumble upon this, let alone choose it. The Lord Jesus explained that even though he came into the world, men would still rather love the darkness. Paul taught elsewhere that the natural man cannot understand the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. The fact is, the natural man doesn't want the gospel. It is unnatural to a darkened heart. God must come in. He must quicken the spiritually dead so that they can receive the truth. Paul and the other apostles have been commissioned as we are to preach the gospel to the sin-darkened world. God then quickens those hearts that he has providentially chosen, chosen for salvation. One of the things that gave strength to their preaching of the gospel was the kinds of actions that the Thessalonians saw Paul and the others who were with him perform, Silvanus and Timothy. <clears throat> We all know that fine words unaccompanied by corresponding actions only simply create suspicion in the minds of people watching those false professors. Had Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy come to Thessalonica saying one thing and doing another, their words would have flitted away on the wind like the smoke that they were, and we wouldn't have the New Testament. It would we would still be in that kind of darkness. But that isn't what happened. These men were truthful, they were humble, and they were genuine. Paul worked with his own hands to earn a living so that he would not be a burden to the Thessalonians. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 7 and 8, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and worship, excuse me, labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any one of you. They were convinced 
because this spoke loudly to them. He was a doer and a giver, not a slacker and a taker. He refers to the gospel, too, as our gospel. That is, it had had its effect on him as well as he had seen it have the effect on the Thessalonians. He was not just bringing information for the Thessalonians in a cold and calculated manner that would some way benefit him. He was sharing with them an earth-shaking happening that had changed him from the inside out. And he had to give it to others. Indeed, another place he says he was compelled to preach the gospel and that woe would be to him if he did not. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The Thessalonians had not only heard the gospel preached, they had seen it lived out, and the impact was incredible. One commentator explained it this way. He said, persons in both the religious and philosophical communities of the first century felt that the only teachers worth a mention's, a moment's attention were those who taught with their lives as well as with their words. And indeed, Paul had done that. Silvanus had done that. Timothy had done that for the Thessalonians. And they were convinced. Then they were cherished. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, That's what happens when you have too many papers. Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. James eloquently says that, that uh, faith without works is useless. In chapter 2 of, of that book, verse 18 through 20, James says, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Paul here commends the Thessalonians that they were imitators of he, Silvanus, and Timothy. And because these three were followers of the one true God, the Thessalonians were imitating Jesus himself. It's interesting to me. I didn't know what Jess was going to... I knew basically what section of, of Philippians he was going to speak about today. But this reinforces what he said this morning. It's, it's an interesting thing that Paul would commend people to follow himself, Silvanus, and Timothy. But he did do that. He commends them. He commends them as imitators. He commends them as, well, we'll get to the next term. But this went, the Thessalonians were imitating Jesus himself when they were imitating Paul as he imitated the, the Lord. This, this brought on persecution. And it, as it talks about in verse 6 here, um, you became imitators of us and the Lord having received the word in much tribulation. In much tribulation. And the persecution that went along with the preaching of the word in the first century, in the first century church was understood. It was expected. Um, the, pre the persecution of that day could reach the level of life-threatening. Not so today, but it seems very difficult for modern Christians, or at least for professing Christians, to endure anything that resembles persecution. These Christians were persecuted likely by the Jews in the community, who had pursued Paul around the country trying to stop him from preaching the gospel, and by the pagans as well. Persecution can come for many reasons. At one time, Paul was persecuted because he cut into the prophets of, a, of the silversmiths making silver statues of false gods and goddesses. At another time, it was because he was preaching the gospel that cut at the legalism of many Jewish folk of the day. The words of the gospel also branded pagan lifestyles as licentious and wicked, and those that would have also been, they would also have been offended at that, and thus persecution would spring from this. Sometimes persecution comes just because people don't like what you're saying. They want you to shut up. They want you to quit talking. 
We noted with delight and gratefulness in verse 4 that God chose those believers in Thessalonica that he intended to give to his son. Here, Paul reminds the Thessalonians and us that their part was to receive the word, that is to believe. That's the second part of this verse. God himself gave the Thessalonians the faith, Ephesians chapter 8. Then he called them to obey, and they being his sheep, he called them, and they being his sheep, heard his voice, John 10, 3 and 4. Upon hearing, it then fell to them to simply believe, and that belief was accredited to them as righteousness, ongoing, full, and marvelous, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And they would live that faith out day by day. And this is the, this is the church Paul was writing to. He wasn't writing to a church that was suing one another over frivolous things. He wasn't writing to a church that was struggling with the idea that you had to go back to circumcision in order to actually be, be saved. He was writing to a church. Now remember, too, the Thessalonians were... I won't say castigated, but, but when Luke wrote uh, the book of Acts, he notes that the Bereans were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they searched the word to, re to make sure that these things were true. Well, apparently, Thessalonians had gotten their act together. Then, regardless of the persecution, Paul remarks also that the Thessalonians had remained joyful with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is a joy that cannot be taken from a Christian. It is a joy that is irrespective of circumstances. Later in chapter 2, Paul will flesh out some of this what some of this tribulation might have been. In uh, chapter 2 of this book, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, we both, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to men. This is the persecution that the Thessalonians had undergone when they changed from worshiping idols to serving the true God. Again, he uses the word imitators, and it was that imitation that had proved to secure the persecution by the Thessalonians, even by their own countrymen, as well as the Jews. The joy that they had experienced, the joy that they experienced transcended their tribulation, even though it was, the Greek, as the Greek stipulates, intense pressure. It was a crushing, intense pressure. This wasn't being called a fool on Facebook. This was much more, much more disconcerting than that. The Thessalonians would have been mocked, challenged to change their minds, in some cases beaten, some cases killed, or had their businesses attacked. This was not just nastiness in first century Rome. Christians were used to light the way to pagan festivals by being doused with pitch and set on fire. The joy that these people were experiencing was something that they were quite unfamiliar with in their old life, but it became a daily comfort to them as they lived out the gospel that Paul had brought them. This was a joy that in many cases overtakes us and we don't understand it ourselves. They didn't understand it necessarily themselves. Uh, although, it's a kind of joy that only the Christian can experience. And I can say that with firm conviction. It's a kind of joy that only the Christian can experience. As one man said, salvation brings together two unlikely words, affliction and joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul taught in Galatians, joy is not happiness, it is not contentedness. It is a fruit of the Spirit that He sovereignly dispenses to those who abide in Christ and are obedient to Jesus. As Jesus said in John chapter 15, He said in chapter 15, verses 9 through 11, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is a joy that the world cannot know.
that only a believer can know. And it's a joy that cannot be taken from you. And it's a joy that sometimes you can be surprised with. This is the fullness of joy that came for the Thessalonians, and it is the same fullness of joy that we experience as believers. We are loved by the Lord first, and because of that, we love Him. His joy becomes our joy. It is not a joy that is superficial or that we should confuse with the word happiness. Happiness is often generated by circumstances. Joy transcends circumstances. It is in this that Paul cherished the Thessalonians. He saw that they were real, that their salvation had taken hold, that they were imitators of the Lord, the Lord himself finding joy even in persecution. That is just something that doesn't happen to non-believers. Joy is a command. And as such, if we are not experiencing joy, and I'm not saying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year, that your smile is so contagious that everybody around you can't stand to be near you. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a joy that comes that's on the opposite side of suffering. It talks about that in the Psalms. <clears throat> As a rule, a Christian should have a joyful attitude. Think about what we have. We have been snatched from the abyss through no work of our own. We have been given a life of fullness through no work of our own. We have been chosen to spend an eternity with the Creator God, enjoying Him and one another in a manner far superior to any enjoyment we have here through no work of our own. The Thessalonians got this, and so should we. If you are not having joy in your life, could it be that it is related to a lack of obedience? Could it be that it is related to maybe some bitterness that you have and won't give up? The joy of the Lord is a genuine blessing in the life of a Christian, and it's often what takes them through the most difficult of times. These Thessalonians grew under persecution, and their joy increased. It is this remarkable reverse arithmetic that confounds the world and blesses the believer, that the joy of Christ can increase even as persecution increases. And concomitant with that, as persecution comes and the church is, is stomped on, what happens when you stomp on a fire the first time? What do those embers do? If you're not careful, they go out and start new fires. They blast out of where you stomped and start new fires. And that's often what persecution does in the world. Sometimes God has to bring persecution so that the church can be energized and spread so that the word of God will again, will again take hold in, in believers' hearts and be propagated throughout the world. He has to spread it out. And sometimes that's what takes it is persecution. So that the Thessalonians were cherished in verse 6. And in verses 6 and 7, and I couldn't think of another word to give this, Xerox didn't seem appropriate. Besides, it didn't start with a C. They were copycats. They were copycats. This is the only church in all of Paul's writings that he calls attention to as one to be imitated. And I, I speak for myself here, but I believe the other elders with, agree with me. That is what we believe about Kootenai community. This is a church that as they follow the Lord can be imitated. You are embers that can be, I'm not saying someone's going to stomp you into the next county, but you're embers that are spreading the word of God. This is the only church that Paul wrote to where he called them a church worthy of being imitated. The Thessalonians were example, Paul says, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Whatever nobility the Bereans had over and above the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17, now they had become an example in much the same way that Luke applauded the Bereans in that chapter. It is evident that they had spent time studying the Word of God. They had spent time in the doctrine of the apostles and had given themselves fully to obedience to the Word and service to one another. 
This idea that they were a model for all believers indicates that Paul was advocating that they could be trusted even by older mature Christians as something to mimic. Now, Paul uses the word tupos here, from which we get the Greek word, the English word type. The Thessalonians were those that were an exact reproduction of what the Bible contemplates describes a Christian. And as such, everyone could look to them for inspiration and help in working out one's salvation day to day. The Thessalonians were copycats of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and thus of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is why they could be emulated. Paul cited them as models for financial giving and financial forgiving and financial stewardship, even though they were in deep poverty and under persecution. They gave liberally, sacrificially, and generously to those who were in need in Jerusalem. This giving did not secure their salvation, but it certainly was an evidence of that salvation. They were chosen, they believed, and they lived it out. Remember, brothers and sisters, though, while it is good to be able to mimic the life of someone we know who is truly following the Lord, in the same way that copying a copy over and over will eventually result in a blank page, we must always return to the one who is perfect, Jesus himself and his word. His life is the one we must truly emulate every day. So while we may imitate a beloved teacher of the word, always be careful. And if you don't hear a teacher of the word say this to you, He's a dangerous person to listen to. Always be careful to check their lives against the Word of God. We never have to check the original, though. We never have to check the original. There's no shadow of turning at all in the triune God. We can copy Him at every turn. So while you can imitate a believer, make sure while you're doing that, you're acting as the Bereans were and now the Thessalonians were, but checking them against the finished, sufficient Word of God. Number five, verses eight and nine, they were communicators. The Thessalonians were communicators. He also noted that they were great communicators in Thessalonia. They communicated the gospel loudly, for that is the gist of the Greek word here translated sounded forth. It is exekomai, exekomai, excuse me. And it means to blast forth or to sound forth intensely. In secular writings of the day, the word was used to refer to a blaring trumpet or even for the sound of rolling thunder. Here in verse 8, Paul says that their communication of the gospel <clears throat> as a result of their faith towards God was so effective that he really needed to say nothing more. Thessalonia was a hub of trouble in the area, and as such, people passed through. They would take with them stories of this church, the goings-on at this church that was so vital and so vibrant, and they would spread that information throughout that part of Europe. When the Thessalonians themselves traveled, they would also take the gospel with them and fearlessly promote the Lord Jesus Christ throughout that part of the world. Verse 9 is Paul's second point about communicating the communicating nature. So 8 and 9, I, I apologize, I didn't read those. And here he goes looking through the pages again. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about you, report, uh, report about us what kind of a reception we have with you, and how you, you turn from God to God from idols to serve a living and true God. His second point is, he says, to those, he says that those who lived in Macedonia and Achaia would tell him about the blessing that was going on in Thessalonica. Paul did not have to tell them. Rather, he had to listen to the stories they would bring him. Have you heard about the church in Thessalonica, Paul? They're truly growing in the Lord. They have turned from idols, and they are really serving the true God. 
And so he would hear stories about the church in Thessalonica from other believers. Can you imagine what a blessing and what a joy that was to the heart of the apostle to hear those kinds of things about people that he had taught? You, you start a church, you teach them, you work with them. He worked with Corinth for 18 months. And then you go away and then you go, Lord, grow that church. Bring them fruit. Cause them to be a blessing to the people around them. And then you, you start hearing stories. And the stories are, wow, that, those people in Thessalonica, they are really something. That had to be just an absolute joy to the Apostle Paul to hear. Paul uses the Greek word here uh, when he talks about the fact that they turn from um, idols and are really serving the true God. He uses the Greek word which means bond slave, which is translated served here. They went from slavery to demons, slavery to dereliction, slavery to destruction and hopelessness to slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ, which brought hope, restoration and eternal life. And all of Macedonia, now this is hyperbole, but this is how Paul words it. All of Macedonia was talking about it. Have you heard? The last, the last C is the word calm. Lastly, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their calm, composed, and patient waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to communicate to you that they were perfect. They weren't. They weren't. There were some things that Paul will address with, Thessalon with the Thessalonians. But for the most part, they were a vibrant, growing, Bible-believing, Bible-living church. And he, would, he, he was encouraged that they were waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ. They had, they had an expectant hope founded in Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ would return someday and take them to be with him. They didn't know if it would be during their lifetimes or long after, but they knew it was true. Do we know that? Is he coming again? He is coming again. I don't know when. I want to act. I want to live like it's in five seconds. But I want to plan like it's at, well into the future and do the things that are necessary to prepare the way. They knew. They didn't know if it would be there in their lifetimes, they said, he said, or long after. Living here as a believer, being given the abundant life that Christ has brought us is a wonderful thing. But to go to be with him for eternity and live with the Son of God who purchased for us, is, who purchased us, is magnitudes of wonderfulness. Is that a word? It's, it is now. It's an adverb. It's got ness on the back. Is magnitudes of wonderfulness greater? And it is the wrath that we would have and the Thessalonians would have suffered had that not been removed. That has been removed. Not much preaching today in many churches has ever talks about the wrath to come. The fact that those who will not believe will spend an eternity separated from the God who created them. It will not be a good thing. It will be a terrible, terrifying, horrifying thing. And that is why we need to be about the business of telling them about what is to come, the wrath that is coming. Paul said that they had been removed from that wrath. They were keenly aware, as all believers should be, of just what they were saved from, a godless eternity suffering forever rightfully for their sinful wickedness. They were delivered from that. And we too have been delivered from the wrath that God has prepared for the unbeliever, for the godless. In the ancient world, there was a general understanding that divine wrath was real, but there was no real hope of rescue from it. Today, the idea of divine wrath is scoffed at. It's a silly vestige of an ancient teaching that we shouldn't even think about. The reality is that Scripture teaches 
that there is a genuine danger, an eternal danger that attends the death of unbelievers. As the sheep of the living God, we have been rescued from that wrath eternally. Regarding this wrath, some see this in this translation. They translate this idea as the great tribulation wrath. Others, and I think rightly so, see this as a more general statement that believers have been delivered from the wrath of God. Contextually, this is dealing with God's general displeasure with sin, and from that, the Thessalonians have been delivered forever. And so have we. We've been delivered from that forever. That's part of the joy that Paul talks about. The joy that persecution... What can pers- what's the worst thing that can happen? You die and you go be with him. What's the best thing that can happen? You die and you go be with him. Well, maybe not. Maybe so. The fact is, the Thessalonians understood this. And these stories got back to Paul and heartened him. Can you imagine what a communication to the teacher that was for him to continue? Now, he would have continued anyway because he said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And it was the Holy Spirit that energized and led him and caused him to spread the gospel to the world. But imagine the boost it's given when you start hearing stories about the joy that a church you founded is bringing to the world around it. Let us always remember, especially when we read a section of scripture like this, especially that we were chosen. And we have also been convinced both by the gospel and the truth of scripture as well as seeing it lived out in the lives of others that we love. We have been cherished by the Son of God himself. And so we must be copycats of his life, communicators of the blessed gospel, both by word and by living it out. And we can also be calm as we wait for the return of the great God and King who has purchased us forever for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, In this time of the year, when we are focusing on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is appropriate that we remember what his life bought, what his sacrifice bought. It bought salvation for the chosen, for the cheap. It bought joy for them. It bought eternal life for them. It bought deliverance from the wrath to come. And it bought so many other things that we will never even be able to plumb the depths of until we come to be with you that is mind-boggling. Might we be those who would spread that to the world, live it out, cherish one another, care for one another, truly care for one another, and bring encouragement and joy to those who are responsible for us as we live out this in this power of the Holy Spirit, living out your, for your glory, the kingdom principles that are in the Word of God, the finished, complete, and uh, perfect Word of God. And we'll thank you this morning. We ask you to go before us as we go out into the world and take your word there that you might prepare a way so that we can uh, awaken the world to the need that they have for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.